you have your Bibles, let's turn to 2 Peter. 2 Peter in chapter 2. Been uh, looking at the. There's a puppet up there. Can someone. I'm just afraid. Louis, will that catch on fire if it's up there on that fluorescent light? Okay. It. <laughs> Well, I just looked over there and saw it, and I thought, that's a puppet. And I didn't want it to catch on. That's what I was worried. If it won't catch on fire, then just don't pay attention to it. And, uh, yeah, now it's too late, right? Now you can't not pay attention to it. Well, if you're creeped out by the puppet watching you, realize the Lord's watching you, too. So, all right. So we've been looking at these false teachers. Uh, These men that were intentionally leading the people uh, away from from God's word and what it says and and encouraging them to instead believe uh, their interpretation of things. So they're not being subject to God's word. These teachers are really, remember so last week, they're molding God's word to what they want it to say. Uh, remolding it really for their own good. It, it's not that they, it's not that they were just wrong in interpretations or whatever. They're twisting God's word for themselves. It's their sensuality, their greed that is causing them to do these things. Uh, and they're, they're taking advantage of the people, using the people as a means to gain for themselves. They have no respect for the Lord, as we're going to see at the end of the uh, first part of verse 10 today. They despise authority. Uh, this is a, these are willful men deceiving God's people. So Peter, in light of all that, Peter has a promise for the church. And, and a lot of what's about to flow out of the end of verse 3 and on through verse 10 and, and really through the rest of chapter 2 is a, is a promise from God about these false teachers and for the people. That these false teachers are going to be punished and the people will be saved. That, that, that these false, false teachers, they might feel as if they're going to get off scot-free. It, it, it might even appear to the church that nothing's going to happen to them because they seem to be doing well in terms of greed. Many people are following them. So as the church is saying this about these false teachers and, and judgment's going to come and the false teachers are like, no, it's not. And their churches are getting bigger and so are their pocketbooks. God is going to be clear to the people and to the teachers that destruction is coming and salvation as well. So let's stand in the honor of reading God's word. Let's read this section starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. We'll read through the first part uh, of, of verse 10. And then hopefully today we'll get uh, from verse 3 down through verse 10. But we'll see. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, 
If he didn't spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, God, asking that you would speak to us through your word, that, Father, your will would be done in our lives and on this earth, that, Father, you would do in us what you already promised to do in your people, which is that your word never returns void, and that you are making us more holy until one day we see you face to face. So, Father, we worship you for your goodness and grace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so, so Peter's going to lay out this promise here, starting it in verse 3 about what's going to happen to the ungodly. But, but to do that, he really begins by taking us back to what he first mentioned in verse 1. In verse 1, he said that these teachers, with their destructive heresies, are going to end in their own destruction. Remember he said, these destructive heresies, denying the master who bought them, they will be bringing upon themselves swift destruction. In other words, these false teachers aren't going to win. And he's already told them that swift destruction is coming. That despite their popularity, despite their success, success both in terms of money, people, that the church will stand and these teachers will fall. And now, starting in verse 3, he brings us back to that promise and shows us the promise of it. This is God's promise for believers in a world of falsehood. What is God's promise for believers in a world of falsehood? Because we need to understand that these false teachers are not an anomaly. They're not something new on the scene. This whole fallen world is built on falsehood. It's been built on lies from the very beginning. So these pseudo-teachers, these teachers of falsehood, these false teachers are just building on the lie that is already a part of everywhere in this fallen world. Lies pervade all of the fallen darkness of this world. Lies uh, that you're the most important person in the world. Lies like you will never die. Lies that you're a good person. Lies that creation created itself. Lies that, that God is surely okay with your life. Lies that sin will make you happy. Lies that the Christian life is not a life of joy and happiness. Lie, 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 lie. These teachers are just a part of that. They're continuing what the rest of the world is doing. They're just doing the world in the church. These false teachers are not special. They're just different. So he says their condemnation from long ago 
is not idle. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. It says that there long ago, it is not idle. Their destruction, not asleep. See, these false teachers were teaching that judgment's not going to come. These false teachers, though, will face condemnation. In fact, they're already in the process of reaping that condemnation. Isn't that what it says? It's not idle. It's not asleep. It's already happening. It's important to remember this for two reasons. These false teachers are living as if judgment's not going to come. Remember, they are intentionally doing these things. So they're living as if God is not real. They're living as if there's no otherwise. How would you go and intentionally twist God's word? How would you ever intentionally deceive the church and milk them for your own good if you actually believe judgment could ever come? So they're living like judgment's not a thing. And that's what false teachers are doing. People who twist God's word for their own good, their own sake, they are living as if judgment's not real. They know what they're doing. It's not accidental. And for believers, it might seem like these false teachers are winning. It might seem like, hey, how long do we have to wait for the judgment? I mean, God's not doing anything with these false teachers. God is, we might be asking, God has got to sleep on this. Do we have to remind, do we have to tell God what's going on in these huge churches? But Peter says they're not winning. In fact, he says they're already losing. Their destruction is not idle. God is already in action. They are already beginning to reap what they have sown. Their destruction is not asleep. It is awake even now, even while it seems like they're growing in popularity and fame and all those things. He says, look, their destruction is not idle. God is not asleep. It reminds you of the story of the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asher in 1 Kings 18. Remember where Elijah mocked the, the false gods of, of, of the prophets because what? And he said, hey, maybe you need to shout louder because he can't hear you. Maybe he is asleep. In 1 Kings 18, 27, at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he's a God. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And the Bible makes it very clear that unlike these false idols, God is never asleep. It's one of the things that makes him God. He never sleeps. And of course, he's not talking about physical sleep, like God's, you know, you got to worry about God actually taking a nap. He's saying that God is always about his work. So you look at Psalm 121, 3 and 4. We see how God's promise to sleep is a promise not just made into the universe, but a promise for our own lives. He will not let your foot be moved He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And that includes in his promise to judge wickedness and to keep his people. Evil is not going to win. It's not winning now. 
And that's one of the things we've got to realize when we look at this world and we see what's happening with false teachers. Or, and that's what these people needed to realize in Second Peter as well. These people aren't winning. Yes, if you look at them through a lens of worldliness, if you look at them through the lens they want you to look through, then it does look like they're winning. But if you won't play their game, if you refuse to look through the lens of the lie... If you refuse to listen to the serpent and instead listen to God, then you can know there is no victory for them now or ever. Because even now, God's judgment is not idle. Even now, it is not asleep. Their destruction is awake. So God tells us that evil is not going to win that judgment is coming that's a promise from God but how do we know that judgment is coming how does Peter tell the people that you know judgment is coming well he does that by giving us three examples of God judging before of God judging the wicked and protecting his people he gives us the example of fallen angels the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah He says, you know their destruction is not idle. You know that their destruction is not asleep. Why? Because remember these events. Look at verse 4. We'll read verses 4 through 7. He says, and this is the three examples. He said, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So that's example one. If he didn't spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. That's two. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked... For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So there's the three examples. How do you know their condemnation is not idle? How do you know that their destruction is not asleep? He said, look at the examples you have of what God does to the ungodly. Look at the examples. God has proven himself before. He gives first the example of the angels. He said, look, angels sinned and they were cast into, into hell to be kept there until judgment, that their judgment has begun and yet is also certain to be finished. Their judgment, it was not idle and it is not idle now and it is coming and yet is here. He said, look at the angels, look at the ancient world. He said, God didn't spare the ancient world when this happened. You get how God describes the world of Noah's day, Genesis chapter 6. When he says this ancient world, what was going on in the, in the flood of Noah? Well, he tells us, he says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You can't get more things were bad than that. Like God's using all the alls and everys right there. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. That's the world of Noah's day. 
That's what was going on. It said God didn't spare that ancient world. He, he judged that world, but preserved Noah and his family. Noah, who was a preacher, a herald of righteousness. So that's the second example. He said, look, look what he did with the angels. Look what he did with the fallen world. This world where the, every intention of their hearts was always wicked continually. And he says, look at what he did with Sodom and Gomorrah. Those, those cities of, of sin. He said they were condemned to extinction. That word extinction is the Greek word catastrophe, where we get the word catastrophe, right? Yeah, I was really hoping y'all would get that one. That was a softball one. Uh, we get the word catastrophe, that, that they were condemned to be a catastrophe. The Bible tells us that, to understand what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, that Sodom and Gomorrah were guilty of two chief sins. One they, was the sin of pride, that they fed themselves and didn't care for the poor. That's one of that's told. This first one told in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. So that's one of the things that Sodom was guilty of. They were guilty of pride. Pride that then thought only about themselves and didn't care about others. The other, Jude tells us later on, almost to the end of the New Testament, was the problem of sexual immorality, of unnatural desires, of, of homosexuality. So Jude 7 says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire. So what you see, when describing the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, when telling us what their sin was, when not making us have to guess, but laying it out for us, their two sins were pride and sensuality. The exact two same sins that these false teachers, Peter has just said, are guilty of. Of pride that feeds themselves, that takes advantage of the people, and sensuality, being driven by passion. In fact, these two sins are going to be how he sums up the people at the end of verse 10, right? That they have def the lust of defiling passion and they despise authority. They run their life their way and their way tends to be one of sensuality. It is no surprise that these false teachers are Sodom in the flesh. These examples... Angels, Noah's world, Sodom and Gomorrah, they are testimonies to us of what God does to the ungodly, to the wicked, but also what he does to the righteous who are living in a world of wickedness. Because what do we see in all those examples? Well, there's a lot of things we could say we see. We could walk through and we could jump back to Genesis and, and we, could, we, could, we could go back and look at Noah and then look at Sodom and Gomorrah and pull out all these things that, man, okay, this helps us understand what's going on in this judgment. But God, in his grace, tells us what we're supposed to see. And he tells us what we're supposed to see in verse 9. In other words, he gives us all these examples and then he goes, so you don't have to figure it out for yourself. Let me tell you what you're supposed to learn from all those examples. Because God knows we'd come up with seven things and six of them were the things he didn't want us to see. Uh, and 
And we'd probably just end up talking about the fallen angels the whole time and trying to figure out what they were. Uh, So look at what he says in verse nine. This is what we're supposed to see. If all those examples are true, what can we learn from those examples? He says, if all those are true, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So what are we supposed to learn from these examples? What lesson do we learn from fallen angels and and the pre-flood days and, and Sodom and Gomorrah? What lessons are there for us? There are two main truths that we're supposed to get from verses 4 all the way through 8. One, that God rescues the godly. And two, that he punishes the unrighteous. Those are God's promise. In a world of falsehood, those are two things that God says, I am going to do. Here are truths that you know are going to be true. One, and let's begin with that first one, because that's where it begins in verse 9. Even though it was the second in all the examples, it's the first one he mentions in verse 9. God rescues the godly. In a world full of lies, where it seems seems like people might be buying the lie, where it seems like the lie might be very popular and lies might be really big at, in bookstores and, and on the internet and on TV and, uh, and even in churches. And, and you're going, man, what do we do in this world with all these, all these lies? What, what, are we, what can we do? And you get all these pragmatic responses to dealing with a world full of lies. One promise you can have in a world full of lies, one promise from God is that God rescues the godly. He always does. He rescues the godly from their trials. Even in a world where every intention of the thoughts of man's heart were evil continually, it says that Noah, Noah lived a life of righteousness. That Noah was a blameless man, that, that, that he, he preached righteousness and he said, and God preserved him. That God preserved him and his family. Lot, Lot, who was living in a, in a culture of sensuality. Remember the same word that he used to describe these false teachers. This is why I think Lot, Peter's trying to show us that these false teachers are the ultimate sodomites. Lot living in a culture of sensuality. Lot who was righteous, certainly not perfect, but righteous. Lot who was distressed by the sensual conduct. There's that, there's that word that it used, that sensual conduct. Who was tormented by the lawless things he saw them do. And the lawless things he didn't even see. That he just heard about. They did a lot. Of, think of all the lawless things that Sodom and Gomorrah did in the open. And he he said there are other things that he just heard about them doing. You can only imagine. Or you probably shouldn't even try to imagine, right? But both of them, it says, were rescued from their trials by God. In a whole world. A whole world where everybody's thoughts were wicked. In a world of Sodom and Gomorrah. Living in the midst of Sodom, in the midst of Gomorrah. Well, remember, it wasn't just Sodom and Gomorrah. It was Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around it were wicked. And Lot's living in that city and, and not, not going to a large church in the city, right? 
Like when Abraham comes and says, look, how many, how few righteous people have to be in that city for you to do something, God? And that's what, that's what Peter wants us to remember. That's what God wants to teach us through Peter. Is that when we're trying to wage war against false teaching, when you're, when you're dealing with lies and a world full of lies, remember God rescues the godly. He rescues them, says, from trials. And, and the word trials there is an interesting word. Your Bible might even have like a little footnote or something and say temptations. Uh, because the word for trials and temptations in the Greek is the exact same word. So context has to kind of determine which sort of flavor you're giving that word. The word, though, comes from the word for test. You're putting something to the test. Which that word test comes from the word that means through or beyond Something So a trial, a temptation is quite literally something you go through. That's how you get, it's a testing, it's something you're going through. It's a trial, a temptation. God rescues his people from the, whatever they're going through, from whatever test, whatever trial, whatever temptation. It's the same promise we find in passages like 1 Corinthians 10, 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation, no trial, no testing has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you to be tempted, not let you be tried, not let you to be tested beyond what your ability, but with every temptation, with every trial, with every testing, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God will not allow us to go through a trial that will overtake us. If the situation in Genesis 6 for Noah had gone, God would not have allowed it to go beyond Noah's ability to withstand. God would not have allowed Sodom and Gomorrah to go beyond what, what Lot could withstand. God will rescue us out of our trials. Why? Because God is faithful. That's what it says there in 1013. Why why do we not face a temptation that that will not overcome us? Why, Why is that true? Why will he not let us be tempted beyond what we're able to bear? Why with every temptation we provide a way of escape so that we may be able to endure it? Why? Because God is faithful. Because in a world of lies, he is true. In a world where your, your best buddies will lie to your face. In a world where your relatives will cheat you. In a world where you are always afraid everybody's lying. God is faithful. Noah didn't fall prey to a whole world of the ungodly. A whole world where every intention of their hearts was always wicked continually. Every single thought always as wicked as could be. And Noah didn't fall. Noah wasn't overcome by that. Lot was not overcome, though he lived in a giant city. I mean, Sodom, and, Sodom was big. A, a giant city full of, of Sodomite citizens. Why? Because God rescued them. And if God can rescue his people from those situations, I mean, that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to, it's the argument from the greater to the lesser. What God is saying is, look, 
if I saved Noah in that situation, and I saved Lot from that situation, then I can certainly save you, church, from these false teachers creeping in. I can certainly do that. If God can rescue his, 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 these people from that, he's going to have no problem rescuing us from our situation. God will preserve his people, even from the persuasive words of false teachers. These trials, these temptations will not overtake them. Why? Because God knows, it says, what does it say? God knows how to rescue them. Because that's the question. We know God is faithful, but maybe, maybe he's wanting to rescue us, but he doesn't know how, right? Maybe God is up there and he's like, oh, I wish I could fix this. Oh, I don't know what to do. Which is what we sometimes do with God and his sovereignty. He becomes a very weak God. He says, look, God knows how to rescue you. So when you're going through a trial and you're living in a world of lies and darkness and you're wondering and you're worried about God, I want to be faithful. And God, I want wickedness to be punished. And I want to live a godly life. But there are so many temptations. What promise can you have? Not only does God want to rescue you, he knows how. He is able to rescue his people from their trials. The thing we can learn from this is that And God rescuing his people is that false teachers do not win. False teachers do not win. So the church is not going to be defeated. God will not be fooled. Why? Because God rescues his people. You do not have to fear that you'll be fooled by false teachers and somehow end up losing your own salvation. John makes this point uh, in his promise to his readers. So you've got false teachers coming in. They're twisting God's word. They're molding God's word. What hope can you have? He tells them in 1 John 2, verse 20 and 21, but you've been anointed by the Holy One and you you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. In verse 10, you've got these false teachers. I've got antichrists. They're coming in deceiving the people, much like you've got in 2 Peter, much like the false teachers you've got there. And John tells his readers that they don't need to be afraid of being fooled. Why? If you can't even be tricked by the antichrist, you can't be tricked by these false teachers. Why? He says, because the Spirit teaches us all that we need to know. You all have knowledge. He says, I don't need to teach you what's the truth and what's not the truth. I just need to remind you not to listen to the lies, that no lie is of the truth. He doesn't have to teach them what the lies is or the lies are. He just has to tell them, look, don't believe the lie. The lies are not of the truth. You know the truth because the Spirit teaches you. The Spirit protects you. The Spirit guards your hearts. God doesn't just sort of save you and then let your heart sort of float from one error to another until you get to heaven. God protects your heart. He protects what you know. You will never unwillingly or unwittingly follow false teachers or follow, in John's case, the Antichrist. Why? Because God will protect you. In fact, this promise is not just true of false teachers, that false teachers do not win. The Bible also promises us that the false teacher does not win. 
Here's that argument from greater to lesser again. You don't have to worry about these little false teachers win if you know that the false teacher will not win. Of course, we're talking about Satan, that God protects his children even from Satan himself. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. It says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. So that's wicked and evil men. But who's at work behind the wicked and evil men? Who's the one who's the behind these lying teachers? Who is the great liar? For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. So they don't have faith, but the Lord, he's faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you're doing and will do the things that we command. Paul wants the word not to be stopped by ungodly wicked men who would stop the preaching of the word. Very similar to what we see in 2 Peter. And he knows that that this will happen because what? Because God is faithful and will protect these believers. That God will, it says, establish them and guard them, but not just against wicked men, but against the evil one himself. But his confidence isn't in the people, is it? His confidence is, I'm sure that the word of God is going to spread and I'm sure you're going to be fine. Why? Not because of you, but because of God. Because that's what God does for people. Because the Lord is faithful. He will establish you. He will guard you. And so we have confidence, what? In the Lord about you. Confidence of what? That they're going to be, that they are doing and will do the things that the Bible calls them to do. He's not not worried about, about them falling prey to these false teachers. Why? Because God is faithful. God will protect them. How can, how can Paul have this confidence? How can Peter have this confidence? Because they heard that confidence from the Lord, from Christ himself. This is the hope that Jesus prayed for his brothers in John 17. John 17, 15, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And it's not that we will not face difficulty, It's not that we will not face trials, but that God will rescue us from them. If there were no trials, there'd be no need for rescuing. God rescues us from our trials. Trials that come both from the world and from the evil one. And this this isn't the first time Jesus mentioned this. Jesus prayed this before, right? it's It's the very last line of the Lord's prayer. Right? What does he say at the, at the end of the Lord's Prayer? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I mean, and, and all of the items in the, in the Lord's Prayer, you know, I mean, those aren't requests, right? Those aren't, those aren't requests of what we hope God will do. None of them are things like, God, we hope you do this. Every single one of those requests are calling on promises of God that we know he does. It's very much praying God's will because it's what God has already told us in his word that he does do. In fact, God has already defeated the world so that we no longer need to fear it. How do we know that that the wicked are not going to win? How do we know that the evil one is not going to win? Because they've already been beaten. In John chapter 16, verse 33, this is what Jesus says, encouraging the people. Remember, he just told them, I don't want you to be discouraged, but I'm about to die. 
which is like the least encouraging thing to say. Don't be afraid, but I'm about to die. But then he tells them why he doesn't want, what hope they can have. And he tells them in 1633, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Peace about the trials that they're about to go through. In fact, he says, in the world you will have tribulation. So trials are going to come. And those trials would cause these men to question what they believed, what they'd seen, what they trusted in. And Jesus says, I want you to have peace. I've told you these things so that you may have peace. In the world, you will have tri- tribulation, but take heart. What? I have overcome the world. Even in a world of Sodom. If our world was on par with the pre-flood world, even there, we could have peace. Not that our lives won't have trials in the midst of a world like that but that God has already overcome our... I mean, the greatest evil in humanity is about to happen. The greatest wickedness ever was about to take place in a few hours. And Jesus says, I want you to have peace. I've overcome the world. And if Sodom has already been beaten, then I don't need to worry if my country starts looking like Sodom. If the world, the fallen world has already been beaten, then I don't need the fear, the trials and temptations that it might bring my way. It cannot beat me and it cannot beat us. Why? Because God has already beaten them. He beat them, the Bible says, through the cross. Colossians chapter 2 verse 14 and 15 says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It is in the cross that Christ triumphs over this false world. And it's that world that God rescues his people from. And when he rescues us, He rescues us both externally and internally. He rescues us from outward and inward enemies. Our our great problem in our fallen world, sometimes we think our problem is the world out there. That's not our great problem. Our great problem is how much of the world is still in here. And that's where God rescues us. So you'll get 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 and 5. It says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. You're born of God, you've overcome the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. Again, not you will overcome the world, you've been born of God, one day you're going to overcome the world in the sweet by and by, in the Beulah land or whatever. That, that you have overcome the world now. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. This world, this world of lies and falsehood is primarily a problem in our hearts. If we're doing triage, that's the big problem. In here, not out there. 
So when God delivers us from the world, the first place that happens is in the setting free of our hearts. In doing that, in overcoming the world inside of us, he gives us confidence that he can overcome our lesser enemy, the world outside of us. Just like he did in the examples of of the pre-fall world and Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, look, I've already overcome your chief problem, which is the world in here. Of course, I'm going to take care of the world out there. I love how Romans 6 talks about this rescue. It says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we'd no longer be enslaved to sin for the one who has died has been set free from sin. God defeated the world through the cross and God sets us free by crucifying our old selves. It wasn't the world out there that we ultimately needed to get away from. It was the fallen world running our own hearts. The same thing that Ephesians 2 warned about. Now we were all like sons of disobedience following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's what we were all doing. God doesn't just defeat the wicked. So when we're looking at God's promise, his promise to rescue his people, God doesn't just rescue us from the wicked out there. He defeats the wickedness that was in us. The rescuing from the ungodly out there is just a shadow of the rescue that God does for our souls. And and as with judgment, we see that this is both a promise and a reality. Not only will God rescue us, but in many ways he already has. So in other words, we're not waiting on this. We're not waiting on victory. We already have it. What we're waiting on is the fulfillment, the completion. So 1 John chapter 2, 13 and 14, it says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So even young believers, even these young men of the faith, John can say have already overcome the evil one through Christ's work in them. Through the strength that they have, through the word of God abiding in them, they have overcome the evil one. He says in 1 John 5, 4 and 5, like we saw, for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? In our faith, overcoming the world is not a hope. It's a reality. And we see it because we already, we no longer believe the lies. The lies of the flesh, the the lies that the things of this world bring satisfaction, all the lies that we used to believe, we, we won't join in the con game anymore. We won't listen. We know them to be lies. Our belief in Jesus as the Son of God, it says, is victory over the world. As, as Paul would say in Romans 6, it's the casting off of those chains. Well, that's as far as we'll get today. We'll go back, we'll finish up a little bit of this, and we'll look at the second promise next week.
But right now, let's go ahead and let's bow our heads and let's let's pray about this promise of God to rescue the godly.